Welcome to the Arts and Minds podcast from Dominican University. I'm Leslie Rodriguez. Located in River Forest, Illinois, in 2020, U.S. News and World Report ranked Dominican University at number 10 among Midwest regional universities and number one for best value in Chicagoland. At the heart of the university is its Catholic Dominican tradition, grounded in the compatibility of reason and faith. The programs of the Live Arts and Minds series presented on campus each year are curated to reflect that tradition and build on the university mission to participate in the creation of a more just and humane world. Today's episode is part one in a four-part series delving into the recently published book, Preaching with Their Lives. Co-sponsored by Dominican University's McGreal Center for Dominican Historical Studies and the St. Catherine of Siena Center, the event was presented via Zoom on March 16, 2021, and reviews the chapter, California Dominicans and the Sanctuary Movement. Contributing author Dr. Cynthia Taylor is joined by union organizer Eileen Purcell. McGreal Center Director Christopher Allison introduced the program. Well, welcome everyone this evening. I am so glad to see everyone here and thank you for coming to our first of many um, new book talks for the new uh, McGreal Center book, Preaching with Their Lives, Dominicans on Mission in the United States since um, 1850. And I'm, and I'm really excited about this book. I think there's so many relevant connections that we can make tonight. And I think we, you know, I've been talking to Professor Cynthia and, and Eileen for this. And I think we all were kind of like really finding a lot here. And I hope we can kind of, kind of um, unpack that tonight. And I just want to introduce what this series is. So the McGreal Center is um, named after Sister Nona McGreal, who was a very important figure in the Dominican life, especially around the, the telling of their history. And so the Dominican University, um, thanks to really um, Don, President Donna Carroll, really sponsored um, Sister Nona's vision to, to create a center that would really boost the study of Dominican life. And so that's why we're here. And that's why we, we, we have worked to uh, produce the book. And, um, and Sister Nona's vision was really that, that, that a lot of, um, that, that Dominicans really needed to know about their history to know who they were and also to know about their future. Because um, you don't know about your future until you know who you've been in the past. And that was really the kind of animating force for Sister Nona's work. And, um, and so, I'm also really thankful also to Sister Janet Welsh, who was the first director of the McGreal Center, who really brought, who's a kind of historian of American religious history. And um, she's now retired. And I, I, I wouldn't, I would suspect she's probably on the call tonight. So, um, but she also really made the center kind of come alive uh, after Sister Nona's vision. And so we are very committed to telling more stories and more histories around uh, the Dominican presence in the United States. And so um, we're really pleased to have Dr. Cynthia Taylor of Dominican University of California. And, um, and uh, um, 
Eileen Purcell, sorry, I'm gonna get this wrong on the on screen, but I'm gonna make sure I, I say it right. Um, who's an IB, IBEW organizer in California as well. And we have this rare opportunity actually, because I think one of the things we were talking about before we got on the call was that we have a historian who is actually like collaborating on this call with somebody that she has studied. <laughs> it's like been like the subject of their study. And as an early Americanist, that is extremely rare in my world uh, that I can, I can talk about the people that I study. And so it's a really great privilege tonight to, to be able to do that. And, um, and I think, you know, another thing that came up and I think I wanna mention here is this is a very timely topic. Um, if you've been paying attention to the news, um, the sanctuary movement, you know, really had a, had a kind of a really big moment in the eighties, but, but really is extremely relevant right now as we think about um, uh, refugees and asylum seekers from Central America are on our doorstep pretty much as we speak. And, um, and this is a great way of kind of making history speak to the present. I think that's one of my visions for these talks is to have kind of a past and present discussion. And uh, we have perfect people to talk about that. Um, so I'll give you a little bit of agenda. I'm just gonna kind of hand it off to, um, to uh, Dr. Cynthia Taylor and then also, also um, um, uh, Eileen, you know, and Purcell, and we will also like, we will show a video really quickly, and then we will kind of move into a conversation. And then after that, we will have, you know, um, they will kind of explain what their research was about, and then I will kind of field a Q&A after that, and then we will, um, with them, and then at the end, if there's anybody in the audience that wants to kind of ask some questions, please use the Q&A feature in Zoom, and if you know how to do that, um, it should be available on your screen. So just feel free to drop questions in there. And then, um, and then one of our, our interns will, will kind of field those questions and we will, we will get, off, uh, get off the ground. So, um, okay. So Eileen and Cynthia, um, I will show the video and then I will hand it off to you. The sanctuary movement has a long trajectory. It grew out of the Hebrew scriptures. It grew out of the Underground Railroad, the civil rights movement. It was a group of people coming together and asking, what does our faith tradition tell us as we meet the times in which we live? How do I live on the prophetic edge? In 1980, the war in Central America was erupting. You saw an exodus of Salvadorans and Guatemalans fleeing those war-ravaged countries. June 27, 1980, the Desquas came to my town with five names, you know, including mine. I fortunately was not at home, but the other four of my classmates were at home and they were killed that night. In 24 hours, I was out of the country. After three months, I ended up here in the United States. The incantation of the Reagan administration was that we were fighting communism in El Salvador. If you were a refugee from Cuba or from Nicaragua, you will get political asylum. But if you were a refugee from El Salvador or from Guatemala, 98% of the cases will be denied. March 24, 1980, Oscar Romero, the beloved archbishop, was assassinated while saying mass. Several months later, four U.S. church women 
were killed and raped, the whole Catholic community and beyond was shocked. We had to do something. We began gathering our folks. We would invite a refugee to come and sit in the middle of them and tell their story. After a year, we had a secret vote to become a sanctuary parish. The number of people involved were thousands. People were raising their hand and said, what can I do? What else can I do? In San Francisco, our objective was not necessarily to help people across the border. Our objective was to integrate them into our community. You had police chiefs and sheriffs really understand that it wasn't their job to enforce federal immigration law, that it was their job to protect the public safety in the communities, and that in order to do that, they had to build trust with those communities. We still have a very broken federal immigration system. We still have a system that is not offering a path to legalization or a path to citizenship. We're asking faith communities to form accompaniment teams, a team that would pledge to support a family or a youth for a year and to walk alongside immigrants and whatever their greatest needs are. I don't feel we can be neutral bystanders on this. We need to tap back into the energy, follow the example of Pope Francis, and become prophetic. We see the value, the dignity, the beauty of our immigrant community. But we have to go further than that. We have to stand up and denounce injustice. Okay, everyone. So, so before we start, I just want to introduce uh, Dr. Cynthia Taylor and also um, uh, Eileen Purcell too to you all. And I'm just going to start with Dr. Cynthia. Um, so, Dr. Cynthia Taylor is an assistant professor of history at Dominican University of California, where she's taught courses on U.S. social history and political history, as well as courses in American religious history since 2004. And Dr. Taylor's scholarly interests have centered around the intersections between religion and working class people in American history. And this is best exemplified in her book, A. Philip Randolph, who's a personal hero of mine, The Religious Journey of an African-American Labor Leader, um, which was published in 2007. And the chapter on the Dominican Sisters of San Rafael, California in the 1980s sanctuary movement really evolved from her teaching a class on liberation theology um, at Dominican University of California, and also from her kind of deep connection with Dominican Sisters in San Rafael and her kind of like relationship with them who are really important part of campus life. And um, so we're very happy to have you here um, on this call today, uh, Dr. Taylor. And also I wanted to um, introduce Eileen Purcell and she's really been a multi-decade champion of labor, immigrant, refugee and human rights. She was the co-founder of the National Sanctuary Movement and the National Sanctuary Defense Fund during the civil wars in Central America in the 1980s and was instrumental in building the international solidarity movement that contributed to the peace process in El Salvador. And after the war, she continued supporting institutional development and international ties through sister relationships, which has been so key to her work. 
And in 1999, she intensified her work with the US labor movement, becoming part of the organizing staff of SEIU, which is a union I used to be a part of, to unionize Catholic hospitals. Um, in 2009, Eileen began working at IBEW, Local 1245, pioneering a hands-on intergenerational multiracial leadership development organizing steward program that has won national recognition. And the program identifies and recruits and cultivates young leaders by immersing them in live campaigns, labor movement, history, and solidarity. And Eileen facilitated the launch of sister relations between IBEW, Local 1245, and electoral workers in Central America and the Caribbean. And she continues recruiting and developing rank and file leadership at IBEW 1245 and the Jesuit University of San Francisco in honor of her work around organizing around labor, awarded Eileen an honorary doctorate in recognition of her work in support of human rights and peace in El Salvador and also her other work with, with the labor movement. And so we're just really honored to have both of you here. And I just, and the, we're gonna start off just by having you talk about your work um, together. And I think, you know, if it, if it wasn't clear already, you know, this really, this talk comes out of a chapter in this, our new book, Preaching With Their Lives, um, which, is, um, which is on sale now from Fordham University Press. And I encourage you to get it if you don't already have it already. But, I, um, but it's a wonderful essay and it really drew a lot of connections to my personal life but also really fascinating kind of historical connections um, as a historian. So I, I welcome you both. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Christopher. Thank you everyone for joining us tonight. And I wanna thank Christopher and the McGreal Center and all of his associates for making this possible. It's so easy for us to do this in this time of uh, a lot of things going on. And I especially wanna thank Eileen because when you asked me to do this, I thought, oh, um, it's just, it just wouldn't be complete. Uh, my story of what I'm telling about in this chapter is, is connected to the real thing. <laughs> so, so I'm gonna just say a few, uh, I'd like just to say a few things that why I came to write this and, and then I kind of want to turn it over to uh, Eileen who's got such a great grasp of, of certainly the beginnings that I'm gonna be talking about where I talked about and wrote about in my chapter. But she's, of course, as you say, this is such a timely topic. And so I think I wanna make about four points. And the first one is, how did I come to do this? And I really came to this out of personal motivations, not scholarly motivations. When I met the, the other professors and the scholars that produced this book, it was amazing the depth of deep scholarship in Dominican history and Dominican ways of life and, and uh, the theology. So it, it was quite profound. And I felt like I'm not really from that um, position or that tradition, but it really comes about because in 2014, I took the trip to Fangio. And, and of course, all Dominicans and, and um, scholars, teachers, faculty, professors know about the Fangeau trip. And I'm proud to say that Sister Patty Doherty, one of the Dominican sisters, is, a, is a, a, a prime organizer of this trip. But anyway, basically, I had this opportunity to go to Fangio in 2014. And I remember the first day I woke up in the room 
where St. Dominic gave his first, or where he preached, you know, and, and saw the house where he lived. And I had, and we went, all of us that were a part of the um, conference that year, that summer, we all came. And, and the first thing the sisters told us was, we're going to take you on a pilgrimage. And we're going to, and you're going to walk in the footsteps of St. Dominic. And I go, whoa. <laughs> so here I'm in this medieval city. And, and they're going to take me on a pilgrimage. It was so exciting. And so for the next 14 days, I walked in the footsteps of Dominic, led by the sisters. And at, at the end of that experience, they really ask you to, what are you going to do with this knowledge? What are you going to share? What, how are you going to turn around and, and share this knowledge and this experience you had. And of course, I was given this gift, um, the gift by the university, the gift by the sisters, this wonderful gift. And so I just said, okay, I just said, you know, what can I do to share? And, and so in the, um, in, when I came back, and this is the academic year 2014, 2015, and the 2015, 2016, in the email, I got the notice about this book. And they wanted to talk about the Dominican experience after 1850. And, and I thought, oh, let me share uh, what I know. And I, I did know, I, I don't, it's not that I'm a, a, a scholar of the sanctuary movement. Um, as a, a, a teacher um, and professor of liberation theology on the campus, I've learned about it. Everything in the film that Eileen produced is key figures and ideas that, that we teach uh, in a liberation theology course. But I did not have scholarship in this area, but um, I had this love for my Dominican sisters and this desire to tell about them. And I said, oh, I, and I also knew that they were a part of the sanctuary movement, that they were involved in it. And both my husband and I had known uh, Salvadorans that shared with us their personal experience. So I just had a very, very basic knowledge. And I guess the sisters told me they were involved. <laughs> but so that's kind of what led me to this. So, so this, this comes out of this desire to have walked in the footsteps of St. Dominic. I started a scholarship and I talked to the sisters. My sources are basically oral histories of what the sisters showed me, that, uh, my archives. The best I could do with the secondary source information um, I could find at that time and with the limited time I had to do this, kind of became the chapter I wrote and that you can read about in this book. But I would like to say that as an historian, I just loved understanding the kind of chronology of, of events. And I just want to say that what fascinated me as an historian was the periods of time. The Sisters of San Rafael, the Dominican Sisters of San Rafael are as old as California. They came in 1850, which is the statehood year, right, of California. So that just surprised me, I'm thinking about it in this way. So from 1850 
to the late 1880s, it was like these pioneer years. And if you know anything about California history, this is a violent, it, it was quite an extraordinary time in California history. And, and to be even to become pioneers uh, meant to be, um, you had to be pretty sturdy. So I'm not going to say a lot about that, but the pioneer years kind of led into the late 1880s where the Dominican sisters made this decision to move to San Rafael. And this to me seemed to be very astute um, understanding of California history and, and where the power was going. And of course, one of the power, of course, is going to be San Francisco. So they, they made this decision in the late 1880s, and this is why 1890, if you walk around our campus, you know, you can see that, that, that year 1890 is kind of the founding of the Dominican College. Well, we knew it as Dominican College, eventually Dominican University of California. So, so, so there's those pioneer years. And then there's this second phase that fascinated me. And as I began to learn and read in the history, a lot of what the sisters wrote um, from the histories I read from 1890 to 1860, these were these years of great foundational building. This was the time of great expanse um, and great success, um, I would say. And this is the time where the sisters were beginning to develop their mission around education and healthcare systems. And were they good at it? Uh, they were quite successful in establishing schools, and uh, establishing um, hospitals. And this, again, their, their, their mission was kind of this, this um, institutional building that was uh, key to the very infrastructure of California life. And, but you know, it's kind of, like you say, infrastructure is kind of hidden behind the scenes. And so what I discovered, and this is, how I'm interpreting uh, the story I'm reading, 1860, there's a shift. Eight, um, excuse me, 1960s, there's a shift. And I'm kind of equating it and kind of connecting it with the big shifts with Vatican II, which was a time of incredible renewal um, and rethinking uh, within the, the Catholic Church. And the Dominican Sisters of San Rafael were again reading the signs of the times as they say or they were they were very taken with this this big uh, seismic shift and in uh, Catholic history and and I remember Sister Carla telling me about uh, Perfecte Peritatis this this um, uh, important Vatican II document and it really asked each and every believer to, to begin to, to think about what is your mission? What are you here for? And so it was a time of great experimentation and the sisters just began to really think deeply. Each and every single individual started to think about, well, what is my mission? And so, so what I found was they, they took this to heart. And, and of course, what what I learned from my uh, talking to Sister Carla and Sister Patricia Akar and Sister Patricia Bruno, Sister Bernadette, the others that, that, that helped me, it was 
where we they looked at St. Dominic's model. They were they wanted to follow in the footsteps of St. Dominic. And I said, well, that's what I'm trying to do. <laughs> so so as I was reading some of their uh, sources, you know, the, the, the minutes to their meetings and the things I found in their archives, a theme of, of developed about hear the cry of the poor. And it was this, this idea, hear the cry of the poor. And it's like, what, what are you hearing? So of the many things that they were doing and experimenting and trying at this time, one of them was the sanctuary movement of which Eileen Purcell uh, uh, is, is going to share with us. But, but this was one of their opportunities and they took it. And in doing so, what I learned was um, the way the sisters do things. And one of the terms that <laughs> Eileen said to me as I was interviewing her, she says, the Dominican sisters of San Rafael, they're dialogic to the core. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, they talk, they think, they ponder, they, they, they um, try to come together as a body, a corporate body to, to make decisions. And because whatever decisions they make affects everyone. So it's this, this idea of taking a corporate stance was so critical to me. So this was a new idea. Uh, I'm thinking right now, if all of us would take the corporate stance together, maybe we wouldn't be so an argument, but, but the sisters, they, they, they talk, they decide, they vote, they come to a decision. And, and the decision was, are they going to become like the film suggested, are they going to become a public sanctuary? Are they going to come out from the background the and, and make a stand and take a stance to be publicly connected to the sanctuary movement? And this of course is, all of the sisters told me, you have to talk to Eileen, talk to Eileen. And of course that was a series of um, interviews Eileen sharing with me sources she had, and that's that's how it started. So it was it 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 really was an amazing thing. And so this is what I learned. I, I I've learned about their desire to walk in the footsteps of Saint Dominic. I've learned about their great democratic way of being and talking and sharing. And then of course I've I've learned about this remarkable partnership with Eileen Purcell. And I think I, I think I want to turn it over to Eileen at this point and, and just say that when I started this scholarship in 2015 and 2014, and you know, like I say, I just had the 2014 experience in Panjo, I it just like sanctuary was everywhere. And I was surprised. <laughs> Eileen wouldn't be, but I mean, for me it was like how did I pick such a relevant topic? <laughs> I have no idea. And in fact, to me, it just, it was overwhelming. It was simply, yes, this was not a story of the 1980s. This is a story of today. And, and I think much more scholarship has to be done in this area. And I think maybe this, uh, this new generations of scholars were gonna need to come up and, and, and say it. But I mean, at least I captured a little part of, uh, I think a very key group uh, 
that were a part of this 1980s sanctuary movement. So at, at this point, I think I, I, I think that's all I would like to say and, and turn it over to Eileen. Just share, share your depth of knowledge and experience um, as you shared with me. Well, thank you so much, Cynthia. Thank you, Christopher. And, and to everyone on this call, especially those of you in the central time zone, I am awed and humbled by your dedication. It's only 7.30 here in California. Um, so I'm, I'm <laughs> the sanctuary movement of the 1980s was one of the greatest gifts in my life. And in the interest of full disclosure, Jose Artiga, the refugee you heard speak in the video that was actually produced by a wonderful young pro film producer from Stanford, Theo Rigby, and he's making a long version of it to come out sooner that'll be updated. But Jose is my husband. So one of the great gifts of the, uh, the work and the struggle that continues was those relationships that in my case actually blossomed into a love relationship, a 37 year marriage and our three sons. Um, when I talk about the sanctuary movement, I have to start with the refugees because what was so extraordinary about the movement was well, our church tradition, Catholic, Christian, Jewish, especially post-World War II, has such a long history of resettling people who are on the move, whether they are victims of natural disasters, victims of war, uh, especially post-World War II. The denominational bodies across the different traditions made a decision and a commitment to invest resources and resettle people. So refugee work is part of the, the, the core of what we do in um, through our, our different church structures. <clears throat> but in the 1980s, we were confronted with a situation where you had people who were suffering wars that were caused by US policies flooding to different parts of the world major cities in, in the United States included because there were relatives who lived there from prior migrations in the 30s during the depression, post-World War II, and they were looking for safe haven anywhere they could find it. Um, but what was unique in this situation was two things. One, we were meeting people who left with the shirts on their back having suffered tremendous atrocities. And when they got here, they were turned back. You are not political refugees. There are no human rights violations. That was the formal position of our government. So there was this dramatic influx of people who were exercising their international legal rights to apply for political asylum, being turned back by our State Department who denied all of their due process rights and they were told there are no human rights violations. That was one distinctive difference. The other was that the refugees who were coming among them were many very young people, young men and women who um, were in the process of fleeing their country that was being ravaged by war, in this case, El Salvador or Guatemala uh, where there was a genocide against the indigenous, uh, they came and were radicalized and said, how can I help my people? And were willing to tell their story. 
at great personal risk. And from 1979 to 1982, when we formally launched the public sanctuary movement, I was privileged to be a full-time organizer with the Archdiocese of San Francisco to work to one, do the needs assessment, raise the funds and find ways to walk with and serve, provide social services, legal services um, and community for the, the, this influx of refugees because San Francisco was one of the destination points, but also to look at the root causes and to tackle the policy contradictions of US immigration policy and US foreign policy. But I didn't do that alone. I, everywhere I went, I brought a refugee who was willing to tell their story. Every free night that I had after I went to El Salvador in 1980 to conduct the needs assessment, where I was followed by death squads, accompanied by a Notre Dame sister, Sister Sandy Price, and a journalist, where we stayed in parishes that were surrounded by the military, visited refugees who had seen their, who were survivors of the Sumpo River Massacre, who had seen their husbands machete to death, their children killed on the spears of a bayonet. And I held those people, took their testimonies. And as a trained social worker, my first job was pastoral and comforting. And then they asked me to tell the story. So in those four years, before we get to the path of this public sanctuary movement, there were refugees who were protagonists and prepared to tell their story to legislatures, to bishops, to judges, to anyone who would listen, to congregations. So we created a network of service and a network of people challenging the policies, stop the deportations, stop the military aid. And by then the Reagan administration was entrenched and it fell on deaf ears. And while we built a tremendous network of support in the Bay Area and in other places across the country, we hadn't really made much headway on the policy. Yes, there were human rights conditions for further military aid, which was briefly suspended after they killed the women religious, the four sisters, well, three sisters, a lay woman um, briefly suspended US military aid, but then it was renewed because they promised to do regular human rights checks. By 1982, when the sanctuary movement was launched, um, I wanna talk about just some key elements. So one was you had these refugees who came to this country, and again, it was a fraction, young, idealistic, traumatized, radicalized, who said, we will tell our story and we're organized. And they organized themselves into self-help groups. And we partnered with them from the Archdiocese of San Francisco. And we went to, we had organized interfaith and one of our pastors from the Lutheran tradition said, what about sanctuary? We gotta push the envelope. What if we publicly and corporately say, we as a community will protect, defend and advocate for the rights of these refugees who are being summarily deported. And we will fight to change the policies that caused them to leave their homelands in the first place. That became the covenant. It was written by an English professor out of UC Berkeley, who was a member of the University of Lutheran Chapel. And five congregations in Berkeley, California, who I had been working with for three years because every year we celebrated the life of Oscar Romero. Every year we filled St. Mary's Cathedral to remember the sisters and Jean Donovan and everybody came. 
and we held symposiums and we, we were in the pulpits and we packed the, 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 the immigration courts for support. So those five congregations had been meeting, the lectionary leaders had been meeting for years. So I went to talk to them about the law, the theology, Robert McAfee Brown had been my teacher of liberation theology, Cynthia at Stanford, um, and he was a Presbyterian leader. And we gathered and when Reverend Geschel said, what about sanctuary? We said, well, let's ask the Salvadorans. And their first answer was no, the organized community, it's too dangerous. We're afraid they'll send us back and we will be killed because we've been talking to this Senator or to that Congressman. Gus Schultz, the pastor said, Eileen, let me go back one more time and talk to them. He met with Jose, my Jose. And at the end of the conversation, he said, how many of us do you need, Father Gus? So such, so it began. And we developed what the other central part of sanctuary was the discernment process that Cynthia writes about in your chapter. And we created a six step process that started with talking to the leaders of congregations because we didn't, we were not interested in, in dividing a community. So we needed buy-in from the congregational leadership that then went to what does standing, what does living this covenant mean in the times in which we're living? What does it mean to walk with Dominic in San Francisco when refugees are flooding in? And we pursued that process of educating around our, our charism, our founding, in the case of the Dominican sisters, truth, the search for truth, witness. We talked about the law. And in the case of San Francisco Bay Area, we insisted after we consulted with legal experts that we were not the lawbreakers by harboring and providing safety, physical safety to refugees but rather our government was violating the 1980 Refugee Act that they had adopted in 1980 to align itself with the United Nations definition of political refugee. Uh, and they were out of sync with the definition, let alone the due process. We met with the immigration lawyers. We met with the historians. And after we educated about the war and the causes and the outcome, we turned to the question of uh, what does our faith tradition call us to do? What are the risks of acting, declaring public sanctuary? What are the risks of not acting? Some of the risks included for the sisters of St. Dominic in San Rafael, losing their license to practice medicine, losing their 501c3 status as a university, having donors abandon them. There were serious concrete risks. And as part of our process, we named the risks. We named our fears and we named our hopes. And we ultimately went back to the refugee who came and stood in the middle of the circle and shared their story and invited them to accompany him or her in any way they could. One way was public sanctuary. So it was a process that really rested on um, soul searching and authenticity and a permission to say, I'm not ready. Or permission to say, I'm prepared to take these risks 
even though I don't know, there's mystery. I don't know where it ends or where it leads. So for the Dominican sisters, this was an enormous uh, risk. It was also a tremendous opportunity to deepen and, and replant the garden. And they were my teachers for high school and teachers for all my, I have six sisters, many of whom were educated by the Dominicans at San Rafael. Um, and my mother was a Dominican uh, educated person. So when we exercise that question, what does it mean to be in community and take on these risks? Um, and there's no wrong answer. And we'll do it as a beloved community. That's when it led to the decision-making process of secret ballot election. We want at least 50% to participate and at least 75% needs to vote yes, if it's gonna be meaningful. And thus, that was the problem. <laughs> and that discernment process became a model for the Dominicans, for the presentations, for the mercies, for the Notre Dame. We used it in congregations across California. By the end of the war, we had over 500 sanctuary congregations, parishes, uh, synagogues, uh, Hindu communities, Catholic, Protestant, and it was a rich tapestry that did two things. One was service. For some people, it was place, providing a safe place. But it quickly became clear that sanctuary was not just about place. It was a dynamic relationship that um, had us accompanying people who sometimes said to us, would you go visit my family in El Salvador? Would you go to the border and welcome people who are trying to get across? It looked different. It was very decentralized. Every community defined it for themselves. But once it was public and once it was corporate, we declared it and the power and we converted it into political power. And we did nothing that the refugee did not, the refugee was the final arbiter because they had the highest price to pay. And so was the sanctuary sisters in this case. They got to decide what they were gonna do because they were gonna pay the price. It's subsidiarity at its best, right? Um, let me just say a couple more things. So I've said the refugee was central Leadership was very important. If the sisters leadership had not said, we're prepared to explore this, commit to this process, and then interpret it locally, whatever that looked like. In their case, it meant bringing in a family of seven plus two adults into their mother house to live. Um, there were little kids scampering around those polished halls. Um, it later resulted in adopting a family that they had lived with them for eight years. Um, and Dr. Juan Ramagosa, his sister and her husband and their two kids are still, in are still in close relationship. So, but everybody had to interpret it their own way. It was very decentralized. Um, and that leadership decision to open themselves up to this was crucial. If we didn't have enlightened leadership with a commitment to governance that was committed to a democratic process, much more difficult to do. And I firmly believe that those communities that invested in the kind of time and process had the strongest commitment. And there were women religious in the Dominicans in San Rafael who started out by saying, I'm not so sure about this, Eileen, who later said, they'll have to drive a Mack truck through me to get to that family. They're not coming in here. 
because we entertained what happens if INS at the time, it would be the equivalent of ICE, pounds at the door, what do we do? And so we, 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 we played it out. Um, it was public and it was corporate. And I want to acknowledge that independent of the sanctuary movement, the immigrant community provided service and safe harbor and took all these risks all the time for time in, in memorial and got no publicity about it. And that's important because sometimes we're the great white saviors and we were not. We had so many role models in the community itself. But what was unique about this was we said, once the refugees said we want to go public because it will, it will move the needle, it'll apply more pressure. You cannot hide from this truth. Um, we went public and we got a lot of media and we were in the media every single day. And then it went from the congregations to the sanctuary cities. It went from the sanctuary cities to the sanctuary universities. It went from the universities and you know, on and on. Um, Catholic, Catholic charities nationally adopted a resolution declaring sanctuary. The National Council of Churches declared sanctuary, but where it was most meaningful, and that was a mantle of, a, of, of um, support for local churches and congregations. When Archbishop John Quinn issued his pastoral letter affirming sanctuary, it was uh, very valuable, very important. It was leadership. It's what gave many of our board of supervisors the ability to finally say, yes, we will be a city of refuge, first in 1986, and then it was codified in 1989. Our diagnosis was the, the guy in the, in the video, was the mayor of San Francisco when it passed. The last thing I want to say is uh, my report, the evaluation. Yes, we saved lives. Yes, individuals and congregations were transformed and renewed. I mean, new life. Um, ask, ask the sisters. Uh, we changed the conversation not only in, in, in congregations, but at kitchen tables in the White House. People were paying attention. Um, we reopened through the National Sanctuary Defense Fund and the American Baptist, Amer American Baptist Church at all case against the government for violation of due process of all these refugees they were summarily deporting. We got half a million cases were reopened and they, the, the government decided to settle 10 years later in 1991 because they didn't want to have to expose the record because it would have shown the, the war crimes. So tremendous successes. We might've even helped to end the war. We certainly made tremendous transnational relationships. But um, we failed to end the policies. And that brings us to today. Um, we did not alter the economic and political structures, which are the root causes of why people are forced to flee their homes. And so you find ourselves today with the border crisis um, and it's complex. And I can stop here, Chris, if you think this is a good stopping point given the time and just see what, where, where people want to take the conversation next. But it's as no. relevant as ever. The questions yeah. remain the same. A new moment, um, but how do we walk with Dominic today? Well, I, I want to go there. So I'll just, just kind of like uh, voice, you know, the kind of more pointed question. But I think, you know, one of the things I, I found very valuable with both your saying is that you, you had a kind of... Um, a individual communities kind of approach of walking in the feet of St. Dominic, but it was one that also opened up towards like really ecumenically to all sorts of people 
to get them on board with this. And to the point where now, like we have uh, multiple sanctuary cities, sanctuary campuses. We have a Roman Catholic president who is very devout and is happy to talk about that. And, and is also has a completely different stance towards immigrants at the border. And, and we're seeing, so I wonder if you could speak to that of the, of the current moment of the connections you see about that, um, you know, that, that the current moment and the moment that you've studied and, and well, Eileen, you were there like in the midst of it. I mean, are there some, are there some um, uh, lessons to be learned, I think here um, for our current time? And, and I know you were going there, Eileen, already, but if you wanna pick that up and Cynthia, you could do, you could too. Yeah. Eileen. Oh, <laughs> well, I've learned that we have to stand in the times we are in. And I think the challenge for us today is to resist the paradigm that we're offered ad nauseum by the media, by the politicians. And the current paradigm is one of law and order. Yep. Uh, it's, it, it's borders are being crossed illegally. People have to follow the law. That's one paradigm. Immigrants are coming, they're taking our jobs. That's what I hear in the union often. But neither are true. And if we look at the history of immigration in the United States and the Catholic position on immigration, if we go to Catholic social teaching, the heart of our teaching is that one, people have a right to move. It's codified in the United Nations, the Universal Declaration of, of, of Human Rights. Um, but in Catholic social teaching, not only do people have a right to move, people have a right to be received. Mm -hmm. And family reunification has been at the heart of good policy. So I would invite our, our academic communities, our faith communities to change the narrative and rehumanize the debate and locate it in there are children on the border who are applying for political asylum and they are being, and Biden has changed the, the rules. They are now being allowed in instead of being forced to stay in Mexico. But I would very respectfully say to President Biden and to Kamala Harris, who I know, because she was my Senator and my Attorney General, and we had Sal Lawrence for Kamala Harris and she was running. So I have some political capital. It's not enough. The family needs to be welcome. We need welcoming centers at the border, not deportation centers at the border. We need social workers at the border. We need to imagine what would we have done in World War II? We've lionized in hindsight, because in real time, we did not pass that test very well when it came to our stance vis-a-vis -vis refugees and Jewish refugees in particular, which I think informed so much of the the pastors I was working with, because they were all, they remembered. They were older men, mostly, few women, um, who remembered that scandal, never again. So I think we have to reimagine, what are we talking about? These are families who are fleeing untenable situations. And I looked it up. There are, today in the world, at any given time, according to the United Nations, there are 79 million people forced to flee their homes. And of those, 
26 million qualify as refugees under the UN standard, 26 million. We're talking about 4,500 children at the border. I mean, the wealthiest country in the world. So I think we have to try to turn the picture and come back to our shared humanity and the, instead of the cost benefit analysis, although I could do that too, for, for our purposes, come to advancing humankind. And again, um, under our current international standards and, and law, political refugees are entitled to move and are welcome. And in our faith tradition, it's not even confined to political refugees. One of the unintended consequences of the sanctuary movement was to divide the Salvadoran and Guatemalan refugees from the Mexican community. Because Mexico didn't have an overt war. There were plenty of human rights violations. There was terrible poverty. It's also reconfiguring what is violence? There's military violence, there's terrorism, there's economic violence that forces people to look for opportunities so they can support their families and live with dignity. So today I would say our task is to try to figure out how we turn the conversation away from fear to one of shared prosperity and hope and, 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 and actually reparations to quote John Sobrino, the theologian, liberation theologian from El Salvador, who says, you know, your country, Eileen, sowed this disaster. And the neoliberal policies that are starving people and reinforcing authoritarian governments are only further encouraging outward migration. The coup in Honduras in 2009 that was blessed by Hillary Clinton and Obama started that whole wave of immigration that continues to this day. So I think we have to do the research, get the facts, but humanize, 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 and use the assets we have, such as international law and our own, our own theoretical standards, which we are very bad about applying. Yeah. What would you add, Cynthia? I would just say that the power of history, of, uh, you know, teaching history, um, knowing the past because it is the present is, is, is um, the first start. Um, yeah. First step. And, yeah. And I think what, you know, kind of, I think also another um, is history as model. I think, you know, what you're saying, Eileen, what about kind of humanizing the situation in a chapter, there's lots of really humanizing moments of people trying to partner with families of fa other families partnering with other families. That's the most human one-to-one. -one. Like we're not talking about that right now about the border crisis of how to partner a family with another existing family on this. And you know, what's going to happen with that? They're going to build a relationship and there's, it's going to be a different situation. Yeah, and, and that's that I, I was very inspired by that. Cause I, I think about my own parish. And I think, no one's knocking at my door trying to ask me to partner with another family that just has been displaced. But I think we would do it yeah. if they asked us. Absolutely. <laughs> right? Absolutely. Yeah. There was a time before, in, in, in the mid-70s, after the coup in, in Chile and the coup in Argentina, when President Carter was president, there was actually a political asylum program, and we identified parishes across denominations who were on a list. And we'd get a call from Pat Darien, who was an undersecretary of state, 
okay, we have political prisoners now in Chile. Can you take them in 48 hours? And we would match them with the parish. Yeah. They'd get on a plane, the parish would pick them up. They spoke no English. The, now these were adults, of course. They, they would embrace that political refugee straight from jail in the aftermath of Pinochet and then later the generals in, in Argentina. Talk about life-changing. And they fell in love. And they were, they were professors. They were teachers. They were union leaders. They were us. This, that's, that's, so, yeah. that, that's a really, I mean, it's, it's a really inspiring part of the, of the chapter. I think it's something that we could really bring into our present. I want to, I want to ask Kate, if, if you see something, some questions in, in the chat about for, for Cynthia and Eileen that I want to give some space for. So we do have one question so far. Um, why do you call them refugees, which is a legal distinction for people with a specific status? Wouldn't they actually be asylum seekers? Do you want me to give a crack at that? Yeah, yeah absolutely, yes. A refugee was defined as any person outside his country or her country of nationality, unable or unwilling to return because of a well-founded fear of persecution, opinion or membership in a particular group. And so when we consulted with lawyers, mm -hmm. they, immigration lawyers, they, they advised us that we should use that terminology because it would enhance the legal avenues toward normalizing their status. So that was how we began using that nomenclature. Yeah, thank you for that. And the other, the other thing in the chat is just Sister Janet Welsh just put an appreciation in the chat just for both of you and, and <laughs> just so, so thankful for this great presentation. I, I thank you both. And if there's any if there's any final questions, we can we can ask them. But I know we're at we're at the hour, and I know uh, for some of us it's a little bit later. But but yeah, thank you thank you so much. And if anybody else has final questions, you can pop them in right now. But beyond that, um, you know, I really encourage you to really check out the chapter in the book because it is it is really re super relevant to our current situation. And it's and it's a and also I will say, Cynthia, I think it's a wonderful example of the way that oral history and deeper history can be in conversation, like methodologically, um, which is a really great model that I know we're, we're trying to do here. But I think it's, a, it's, it's also something that's, you know, I think you do a really great job of just showing the ways the community like really evolved from the gold rush to being a big sponsor of sanctuary communities. It's a wild story. <laughs> and the sisters were there every step. <laughs> and, and like I say, they, they knew where the power, you know, where to go to be the most effective, to, to stay where it is. And, and all I, I say on our campus, we revere them here. I mean, because they're here. They're, I see them on the walks. They're, they're just here. The, the peace bell that they ring. I mean, you know, they, they open up the uh, convent and, you know, serve us smoothies, you know, when we can. I mean, they're, they're just such a part of us. And oh, and you know, we're talking about building on the shoulders, right? So much now, you know, um, Amanda uh, Gorman spoke about build, you know, know whose shoulders you stand on. We literally stand on the sister's shoulders. And I just can't think of anyone on the campus here who just, just does not know that. They've provided us this beautiful 
place here in San Rafael where, you know, the pillars of, of service, community, study, um, reflection, this is just a part of, of who we are. So it, like I say, there is oldest California uh, or mo you know, what we think of as modern California. And, and hearing Eileen again talk tonight is like, there's gonna be, we need scholars now. I'm gonna tell my students, <laughs> this is where we need the scholarship. This is where we need to, to, to learn, to change the narrative because that has an impact on policy. Uh, like you said, the law and order and what those mean to go deeper into the stories. And like you say, the real human stories that history, history uh, shares with us. But the sisters that were at that moment in, in 1980, where they just connected, they found the people to you know, advance them. I'm thinking we just need to stand on their shoulders and we need to keep reaching. Well, I think that's a great point. I mean, I think, you know, to, to, to finish it up, I, you know, I think we feel the same way at Dominican University with the Cincinnati Dominicans is that we do feel like we want to stand on their shoulders. And I think yeah. a cool thing about, also about your study was that even the sisters felt that they were standing on the shoulders of the examples of St. Dominic. Yeah. <laughs> and we're all doing this all the time, you know, and I think that's maybe a good note to, to end it on is that this is the value of, of, of study of history like yeah. you're saying, Cynthia, like yeah. we, we need to know where we came from and we need to, and we can, we, and if we know where we came from, we can stand on the shoulders of people who've made a, made a witness for them. Yep. It's a privilege to be with young students, you know, and you're, we're talking about history and they're, they're creating their own histories and their own studies. It's um, like you say, it's a start. It's, it's the beginning of knowing history. And like I say, I, I just think when I find Eileen, <laughs> it was a gift from the sisters. You know, they said, talk to Eileen. And hearing her tonight again, revives the story for me uh, about the next steps. Yeah. Keep on keeping on. Any final word, Eileen, before we head off? Thank you for your time, everyone. Thank you to everyone on the panel and everyone who's in the community listening. And for your work, Christopher, great work. Yeah. Thank you, everyone. And your and, and the McGreal Center for putting out the book and yeah. Fordham University Press <laughs> for publishing. For publishing it. Yeah. So yeah, and 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 look forward to we have we have three other talks um, in the next month or so. And you know, I think I it's important to notice at least, well, actually all four talks, but at least the definitely the ones in March are coincide with Women's History Month. And all these all these talks are about women's history, and so I think it's a good to to honor that and and to to kind of just just do um, so. Anyways, uh, we will see you for other talks in the future, and uh, thank you everyone who is who's been on. Appreciate good it. Good to everyone. see you, Eileen. It just touched my heart. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, and thank you, Christopher, putting this together, and Kate and Patrick and Rachel for making it happen. Yes, thank you all. Yeah, thank it was you. A Good evening and good night. <laughs>
Special thanks to the production team of Samantha Barr and Patrick Serrano. Theme music is 10 Days Sailing by El Rey Music. Closing music, so proudly Dominican, composed and played by Sue Kaczynski. The views and opinions of the speakers in the podcast do not necessarily reflect those of Dominican University. A wise Dominican sister once said, The search for wisdom, for love, for truth, is strenuous and unending. It takes good companions to persevere in it. Thank you for joining us.